0: Welcome back to the COGO Pod. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thank you so much for tuning in. Now, as you might have discerned already, so much of what we do in this class is wrapped up in pursuing a complex and nuanced understanding of political institutions, political systems. And my effort today is to try to provide you with, well, a systematic approach to understanding political systems. Now there are all sorts of lenses through which we can view political systems and political institutions. And perhaps in future talks, I will dive more deeply into some of those. But today my focus is on systems theory. Systems theory has evolved through the discipline of political science throughout the last two or three generations. Its heyday was probably in the 50s and 60s. And if we were to try to trace systems theory to one scholar, which might not be the healthiest effort, but to give some credit where it's due, let's give some credit to David Easton. Easton was a Canadian, got his PhD at Harvard, taught at Harvard for a few years before spending most of his career at the University of Chicago. And in my talk today, I'm going to try to create a sort of synergy between the working mind of David Easton and that of Gabriel Almond. If you've been listening to this podcast regularly, you've probably heard me talk about Gabriel Almond. Almond, for his part, was a student at the University of Chicago, but spent most of his academic life at Yale. And Easton and Almond were, and to some, still are titans of political science. Both were presidents of the American Political Science Association at one point. And there are still scholars today who would happily put both of them on the Mount Rushmore of political science. And as interesting and influential as they are, enough about them, right? Let's get to their work. Okay, so Gabriel Almond frames the system approach this way. He says that all systems necessarily have two properties. First, all systems have a set of interdependent parts, right? interdependent parts. And then secondly, all systems necessarily have boundaries towards the environment with which that system interacts. Right? There are limits to the sovereignty of the system. Okay? Interdependent parts and boundaries. Now, the political system itself is a set of institutions and agencies, you know, executives, legislatures, judiciaries, bureaucracies, all that stuff. And that system, as we know, is mostly concerned with formulating and implementing policy and also communicating the collective goals of a society or of groups within it. Okay, so that's Gabriel Almond's definition of a system, what it is and what it seeks to do. Again, a set of interdependent parts with boundaries towards the environment with which it interacts, whose goal it is to formulate and implement policy and to communicate the goals of a society. And if that sounds a little abstract to you, (laughs) well, welcome to political theory. It's a little bit abstract. And so what I hope to do today is to nail that definition down through example, and then to foray into the abstract again by walking you through some, I hope, useful analogies that illustrate systems thinking. All right, cool. So what the systems approach offers us is a systematic exploration of how political structures of a government are functional and so we measure the functionality of political structures by the extent to which they promote order balance and justice and structures are dysfunctional to the extent to which they promote disorder or imbalance or injustice right and all systems have functions right so a function is a purpose just remember that right that's what we're talking about when we're talking about functions we're talking about the purpose of an institution. So to nail this down for you a bit, lest we get too theoretical, the executive branch is a structure. The structure has a purpose. The purpose is to promote order, balance, and justice, right? It's also to execute the laws, to manage the bureaucracy, etc. But at its root, we can measure the functionality of an executive or a legislature by the extent to which it promotes order or balance in the political system. Now, all political systems have a couple of common functions. All political systems socialize the citizenry. They all recruit and they all communicate with the citizens in order to formulate and implement policy. So I want to take a hot moment to walk through each of those in turn, political socialization, political recruitment, and political communication. Political socialization is a process that we are all always going through. It's an interactive process by which individuals learn the skills, the values, the beliefs of a political culture. In other words, political socialization is how individuals, how you and I, form our political attitudes, and thus, collectively, how we as citizens form political culture. And every regime, from the most democratic to the most authoritarian, socializes its citizenry. And they do so through what we call agents of socialization. So let's think for a second about how we develop our political beliefs and attitudes. Let's think about how political culture is formed. I mean, obviously it's a complex and dynamic process, and it's a process that is done through what we call agents of socialization. The family is an agent of socialization. You know, to some substantial degree, we get our political beliefs through our family, our parents and our aunts and uncles, our siblings. They teach us, sometimes dogmatically, sometimes not, about how to engage with politics and what to think, politically speaking. In fact, the family might be the most profound and effective agent of socialization. Most people develop the same political attitudes and beliefs that their parents have. And as daunting as I know that must be to many of our listeners here, it's true. And that's in part because our family has a huge impact on where we are raised and how we are raised. Our family has an impact on our socioeconomic status our racial or ethno-religious backgrounds. So the family has an outsized impact as an agent of socialization. The media plays an important role as an agent of socialization. Education systems play a huge role in socializing us politically, right? If you're from one of those countries where there's a picture of the leader of the country in every classroom, or if you're from one of those countries where you wake up and you pledge allegiance to the flag and they sing the Star-Spangled Banner at every sporting event, then you know what I mean. But sometimes it's much more subtle than that, right? In Western liberal democracies, students tend to speak more in class. They tend to engage with each other and to engage with their teachers more freely and in more authoritarian political systems, the schools tend to mirror that. Students have less of a voice in class. The teacher doesn't ask them so much what their opinion of the reading is. They don't ask them how they would solve the equation. They tell them what their opinion should be, and they show them how to solve the equation. So education systems play a crucial role in modeling the types of behavior that the political system demands in that political culture. So we got the family, media, education, religion is an agent of socialization, corporations, interest groups, political parties can play sometimes an outsized role as agents of socialization. The government itself is an agent of socialization. The military, all of these are different agents of socialization. And in some political cultures, the military plays more of an outsized role, and in other cultures, it's really understated as an agent of socialization. In some cultures, religion plays a central role as an agent of socialization, and in other cultures, religion plays more of a peripheral role as an agent of socialization, right? But again, what we're talking about here is one of the central functions that political systems play, which is to Socialize the citizenry, and they do so through these agents of socialization. A second system function is political recruitment. And political recruitment is the selection of people for political leadership and for government offices. So, how does a system select people to lead? What are the determining factors in a political system? of when someone becomes a minister or a prime minister or a chancellor or a president or a congressperson. Well, agents of elite recruitment do that. Political parties are often agents of elite recruitment, right? The political party can play a central role in finding young, talented, bright minds committed to public service, or at least committed to the party, and they refine and train them so that they can become ambassadors, or so that they can become House Majority Leaders, or so that they can become Prime Ministers. I had the pleasure of growing up in my fair city, Chicago, and I remember as a young man being in a room with Barack Obama before the country knew his name. And the dude was just a cut above. He exuded warmth and grace and confidence, and it was pretty clear that he was the brightest guy in most rooms. But he could talk to anybody, and he could make anybody smile, and he could make everybody think. And the Democratic Party of Chicago, which is really the only party in Chicago, (laughs) took notice really quickly. And he was an Illinois state senator. And about a minute later, he was a senator from the state of Illinois in the United States Congress. And about a second after that, he was president of the United States. And the Democratic Party was super enthusiastic about him. It's not too dissimilar to what you see with Pete Buttigieg in the last couple years. A total sweetheart of the Democratic Party. Dave Cameron and the Tories in the United Kingdom. Eaton boy, top of his class, went to Oxbridge. The conservative party had a close eye on him. The conservatives wanted Cameron on Team Tory. And they did everything they could to keep him on the glass escalator. And political parties as an agent of elite recruitment is not limited to Western liberal democracies. It's very much the case that the Communist Party of China plays a decisive role in determining who the political elites are. In fact, until recently, the Communist Party of China had a nearly hegemonic role in determining who the elites were. So political parties can play a central role in determining who rises to the top. The military, can play an important role in elite recruitment. You know, in the modern era, until Bill Clinton, it was pretty much expected that American presidents serve in the military. And in other countries, particularly more militaristic regimes, it's absolutely essential to rise through the ranks of the military in order to make it into government. You know, and we should bear in mind that academia can be an agent of elite recruitment. In the United Kingdom, for instance... While it's not like it used to be, about a third of members of parliament went to either Oxford or Cambridge. Now that was 50% just 20 years ago. But the academy can serve as a functional talent pool for determining who will rise to the top in government. Business can do the same. In the United States, and to a lesser degree in the UK, and to an even lesser, though substantial degree, in China... People rise up the ranks in business, and it's determined by the voting population and or by the political establishment that business acumen can translate into really good political leadership. And so we can look at how political parties or the military or academia or business can play a substantial role in elite recruitment. And I think it's interesting to look comparatively at this, right? Like, How do leaders rise to the top in Nigeria versus Mexico versus Russia versus China? And what are the most useful agents of elite political recruitment in any given system? Like, do the skills and personality traits of a business person translate well into great political leadership? Perhaps they do. To what degree do we trust political parties to bring the best to the top. It is hard to argue that the PRI in Mexico was bringing the cream of the crop to the top for its 71-year so-called perfect dictatorship. However, there are indeed a lot of wicked bright technocrats who rise to the top of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, I can't say for certain whether they are indeed the best and brightest, but the Chinese Communist Party certainly goes to great lengths to vet the best and leave the rest. And I guess ideally, you probably want some people with military experience and academic experience and business experience, and then you want some real party loyalists. And it's probably a fool's errand to seek to determine which agent of political recruitment is best. I don't think that's healthy or useful at all. But it is important to determine the effect that that agent of elite recruitment can have on an aspiring elite politician. But I should pause to say that it's not just about recruiting elite politicians, it's about determining who staffs the bureaucracy. How do you determine who's going to run a bureau at the Internal Revenue Service or a post at the Department of Homeland Security? How do you get the best and brightest people? You know, and in more democratic regimes, we tend to have civil service exams. And all people, regardless of where they went to university or what political party they're affiliated with or whether or not they served in the military, will have equal access to rising through the ranks of the civil service. And in more authoritarian regimes, like in China you're unlikely to rise through the ranks of the civil service unless you're a card-carrying, dues-paying member of the Communist Party. Now, that was changing through the first decade and a half of the 21st century, and it looks like under Xi Jinping in the last couple of years, it's changing back in the other direction. Right, so like I said, political institutions in the systems theory fulfill three main functions, socialization, recruitment, and of course, the third was Communication. And political communication is exactly what it sounds like, right? It's the flow of information through society between a government and its people. And in more democratic regimes, it's a two-way street. The people speak to the government, and the government actually listens. And the government speaks, and the people listen. And to the degree to which the people and the government have a healthy two-way line of communication, then we have healthy political communication and a healthy political culture. And thus we're more likely to have a healthy political system. So if systems function to socialize and recruit and communicate, what processes do that system go through in order to fulfill those goals? Professor Easton writes about this in a very convenient way, he says that there's four functions. There's interest articulation, interest aggregation, policymaking, and then policy implementation. Let's walk through those four right quick. Interest articulation. The people, either as individuals or through interest groups, they articulate their interests. They speak their interests. They say what they want. That's interest articulation. And on one hand, that's very simple. And on the other hand, it's inordinately complex. Because you have people from the East who have these desires, and the people from the West who have these desires. And you have old people, and they have these demands, and young people are making these demands. And people of this ethno-religious background, they really want to focus on this. And people from this ethno-religious background, they might be more interested in that. And people of this ideological hue demand this, and people of that ideological hue demand that. And so the people articulate their interests, and in more democratic regimes, they articulate their interests more freely and without fear of reprisal, and in more authoritarian regimes, they might be muted in their articulation of their interests. There are smaller boundaries that they have to articulate their interests, but that, in short, is interest articulation. And then what the government does is they aggregate those interests. So they listen to the people and they try to bring the people's ideas together. The people's ideas which are unsystematic. They are disparate. Sometimes they are selfish. Sometimes, often, they are foolish. But the government has to, through various means, sort of compile the varied and sundry interests of the people. And then, after articulation and aggregation, they have to make a policy out of the disparate, contradictory, sometimes foolish ideas of the people. And policymaking itself is inordinately difficult. I know that my dear listeners out there would like a healthcare policy, or they'd like a gun policy, or they'd like an education policy. And you can have ideas and hopes and dreams. And I encourage (laughs) all of that. But making policy isn't just about ideas and hopes and dreams. It's much more hard-nosed than that. It's about writing something within the confines of the law that can actually work, that most people will willingly adhere to. This is why we have these public policy master's programs at the most esteemed universities in the world, because writing policy is hard. I know, my dear listener, that you want an environmental policy that makes the earth habitable for all of us and for all species. I do too. And you may be angry, and I might be too. But can you write the policy could you even begin to sit down to write the first paragraph of the policy not the policy of your hopes but a policy that can be realized and within the confines of the law policy making is hard stuff and hopefully this system recruits the most competent leaders to write policy and the fourth process after articulation aggregation and policy making is implementing policy. And if the policy is written well, and my friends, that is a big if, it's easier to implement the policy. But here's the problem. If either because the policy is written poorly or because the people don't have faith that the policy should exist, then we run into a real problem of policy implementation. A real easy example is prohibition in the United States, which I know I've mentioned in the previous talk. The prohibition policy was wrought with error. Not necessarily in intent, although that's debatable, but in that there wasn't anything written into the policy that gave federal, state, and local law enforcement officials the teeth required to implement such a game-changing policy. And prohibition not unlike drug laws in the United States today, is a useful case study in poorly written policy which makes implementation next to impossible. Perhaps less controversially, tax laws and tax codes. If tax policy is written poorly, it's really hard to enforce. And even when tax law and tax codes are written well, it's difficult to implement those as well. So in all four of these process functions, we have great degrees of difficulty, right? The people being able to articulate their interests in, shall I say, an articulate way poses a Herculean challenge. A government's ability to aggregate those interests which have been articulated is a Herculean task, particularly in regionally, racially, ethno-religiously, and economically diverse countries. Making policy well is a Herculean task, and implementing that policy, even when it's made well, is likewise Herculean. And all of those process functions are terribly vexing, both in democratic and non-democratic regimes. I think that there's this illusion growing over the last couple of years that the Chinese got it easy because they don't have to listen to the people articulate their interests, so they don't have to aggregate it, so they could just make policy and implement it. And that illusion is born of the ignorance of the fact that Beijing has a terribly difficult time implementing its laws, which also goes to explaining why Beijing in its desperation is using things like cyber surveillance, and social credit scores as a means to implement its policy. So adequately fulfilling these process functions is always going to be difficult. It's difficult in autocratic regimes. It's difficult in democratic regimes. Because guess what, kids? Governing is hard. Real easy to criticize, real hard to do. You know, you could break it down and try to make it digestible. And that's what Easton and Almond do rather splendidly. For example, Gabriel Almond talks about all government having three policy functions, right? He talks in real simple terms and really useful terms about how all government action results in what he calls outputs, which is to say the implementation of political processes, right? Right? And these three are regulation, extraction, and distribution, right? All government efforts go towards one of three functions. Regulation, right, of behavior or of the economy. Extraction, taxes, fees, and tariffs. Like the old French finance minister, Colbert, said, plucking the feathers of the goose with as little screeching as possible, right? You have to extract taxes and fees and tariffs. And that stuff is really complicated, of course. We have a full menu of options for extraction. And then distribution, which is to say, now that we've extracted from the people a certain amount of their income, we have to distribute it to the citizenry. We have to provide benefits and services to people who live in this country or this region. So that's really systems thinking, right? Looking at the functions that systems serve in terms of socialization, recruitment, and communication. Looking at the processes that systems engage in, articulation, aggregation, policy making, and implementation. And then looking at what these policies seek to do, which is basically wrapped up in regulation, extraction, and distribution. And I try to ground my discussion of all of that in some specific examples that we see in Mexico, or China, or the United States, or, or, or. But perhaps it could be equally useful for me to seek to make sense of systems theory via analogy. So right now, I'm looking at my hand, and I would encourage you, my dear listener, to look at your hand as well. I know you've seen it before, but just take a gander at it. The hand has different structures. There are the nails, the bones, the tendons and ligaments, the skin, mm. veins, etc. Each of these structures serves a function. If any one of these structures is dysfunctional, which is to say, if any one of these structures is perhaps injured to the degree to which it creates an imbalance in the hand that could create an imbalance in the whole functionality of the hand. So if we're lucky, we got five fingers on our hand. Let's say that in a freak super sad accident, our thumb gets chopped off quite obviously that throws off the balance, the order, the homeostasis of the hand, the rest of the hand is somehow going to have to shift its function. In order to somehow make up for the absence of the thumb, yeah. Now let's think about that in the context of a political system. What if at the top of the executive branch you have a president and a bunch of henchmen who are incompetent and/or malevolent? The president is a crook, a thief, a no-goodnik. Because the nature of the system is interdependent the legislature and the judiciary and the civil service have to work double time, have to work overtime, have to work on overdrive in order to somehow mitigate the nefarious effects of an executive branch gone south. That's kind of the functional equivalent of getting the thumb chopped off. What if in an unfortunate event, you put your hand on a hot stove and the structure of the skin gets burnt? It's going to be hard for that hand to function optimally. The hand might not function at all. If it functions at all, it might only function with great pain and a certain sclerosis. What if the legislature is just not doing its job, if it's caught up in gridlock? Or if there are too many parties and a really uncomfortable coalition has to be formed that doesn't function? In order for the system to function, remember, systems are interdependent. Each independent branch, executives, legislatures, judiciaries, bureaucracies, and governments at national, state, and local levels need to function. And the failure of any structure, you look to the United States, are state governments doing their jobs? I'm going to go out on a limb and say most of them are not. And there's reasons why that is, and it's not in the purview of this lecture to explain how and why state and local governments in the United States are not fulfilling the functions designated to them by the U.S. Constitution, but it's a real problem. On average, for the last 15 years, the United States Congress has an approval rating of about 13%. Sometimes it goes up to 18%. It's gone as low as 8%. I want to know who the 13% of people are who think that the United States Congress is functioning. What sort of, like, jaw-dragging people are these? There's no reasonable person who could look at the U.S. Congress and say, yeah, that's working well. The cylinders are firing full steam there. Not even close. So for a system to work, each of the structures needs to fulfill its function, lest the other structures somehow legally or extra legally have to carry its weight. All of the structures on your hand have to be able to do what they're designed to do, lest it creates stress on the other structures. And in this, maybe the foot is a better example because if you ever mess up your foot real bad and it lasts for a week or two or longer, you find real quickly that like if your right foot got all jacked up, that your left knee ends up hurting because your left leg is biting off more than it can chew. And once your knee starts going, your hip, your back, it's all connected interdependent parts. And I want you to think about political systems in that way. All of the institutions have functions to fulfill. And if the physiological analogy doesn't work for you, for those of you who have an interest in automotive systems, you think about what a simple engine does, like a motorcycle engine. What does it do? Well, it intakes air. In this metaphor, the air is the hot air of the people, their articulated interests. The engine takes in that air, right? It aggregates that air, and then it compresses that air in what we call interest aggregation, right? These people want this education policy, those people want that education policy, those people want that focus on education, you sort of compress their varied ideas together, aggregate them. And then in a power stroke, a spark plug, you have policy, you make a policy. That's the power stroke, policy making. And then the exhaust is the enforcement of it. You gotta get out there in the world and make sure that the policy is being enacted. And that's really how simple engines work. It's intake, compression of air, a power stroke, and then an exhaust. And that's how political systems work. It's articulation, aggregation, policymaking, and implementation. Perhaps unfortunately, while there's very much a science to automotives, political science is a little bit more sticky, particularly in the modern era. And if the physiological analogy, the hand or the foot doesn't work for you, if the automotive analogy doesn't do it for you, think about how your school is structured, right? You have the students and you have the teachers and then you have department chairs, a social studies department chair, a math department chair. And then you have the deans and the assistant principals and then there's the principal And then you have like a parent-teacher association. Maybe you have a director. Maybe the school is part of a larger education network. Maybe it's part of a district or a big city school system. Each of these are structures, right? The students, they all have their own interests. Everybody has their own hopes for their education. And to represent the students' interests, we usually have something called a student council or a student union. The teachers might be represented by a union. The teachers are represented by their department chairs if the department chairs are performing their function. And so we have all of these interdependent parts, the teachers' union, the parent council, the student council, the administration, including the principals and assistant principals and the deans. And I urge you to carefully consider what happens if just one of those structures isn't functioning optimally, or worse, if one of those structures is totally dysfunctional. Imagine, if you will, a number of strong structures, and then, for whatever reason, the school ends up hiring a principal who's atrocious. All of the other structures get thrown into imbalance perhaps disarray, to accommodate for the dysfunctional structure of the principal. What if the principal's great and the department chairs are strong and the parent council's doing a great job, but the student council, the tribune of the masses, they're not doing anything. Most of the kids who tried to get on the student council were just trying to brush up their resumes or thump their chests, and pump their egos, and the student council becomes this dysfunctional body. The students aren't listened to through the one body designed primarily to listen to them. That makes the job of the principal infinitely harder. It makes the job of the parent council infinitely harder. What if you have a solid teaching faculty, but the department chairs are each and all atrocious. And the department chairs are supposed to be the tribunes for the teachers. Right? The system, the school system is dependent on each of these individual structures performing their function. And their failure to do so puts a huge strain on the other structures. And it can make the system totally dysfunctional. And of course, these are just analogies, but I hope that they're useful in helping you to investigate political systems more carefully. When you look at the governments of Britain, Russia, China, Nigeria, Iran, and Mexico, examine each of the structures of their political systems carefully, Read and think critically about what types of systemic changes can be made to make the system more balanced, more orderly, and ultimately more just. For such are the goals of political systems. I hope that you found my set of thoughts about political systems instructive. I hope that you find this useful. If you do, I cordially invite you to hop over to my Buy Me A Coffee page. You can make a little donation to this podcast. If it helps you think more carefully about politics, if it helps your students think more carefully about politics, feel free to throw a couple coins in the kitty so you can help keep this thing going strong. I link to the Buy Me A Coffee page. I also link to my lecture notes in the show notes to this podcast. So if you were furiously trying to scribble things down and you're not sure you succeeded, some truncated version of my ideas are there for the taking in the show notes to this podcast. In the past week or two, I've received a couple of kind notes, letters of gratitude from some listeners, a couple teachers, and a student. Just want to say thanks. I'm wicked grateful that you listen and honored that you find some of my thoughts on politics to be worth your time. All right, that's it for today. Please stay healthy. Please stay well. Take care of yourself. Take care of your people. And I'll be back to bounce ideas around with you soon.